The sermon text today is Psalm 121. I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. When I was younger, I didn't spend a ton of time in the Psalms, believe it or not. It's not that I didn't like them, I just didn't gravitate towards them. If you had a time machine, you could see me back in high school and I was opening my Bible, I'd probably be near the back, probably in an epistle somewhere. I love things that were, con- that were concrete, just tell me what to do, tell me what to think. If you told me that we were going to have an upcoming sermon series on chapters 12 through 16 of Romans, I would have been super pumped. I don't want to steal Tom's thunder, but there's, there's more to the story in those four chapters than simply, uh, than, than simply, here's what you do, here's what you think, but you'll have to come back in a couple weeks for that. But as I've matured, I've discovered the incredible richness that there is to be found in the Psalms. The Psalms give us pictures, examples, words for how we're to interact with God. God is real. We have a real relationship with him, and the Psalms teach us how we're to interact with him. D.A. Carson once wrote that the Psalms capture the full range of human experience. They capture the full range of ways that we can engage with God. And he even said that as we get older, we should expect to appreciate the Psalms more. The more we've experienced, the, 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 the more that we've matured, the more we realize that the Psalms get it. They understand what we're going through. They understand our hearts. They teach us how do we interact with God in these various situations and circumstances that we are bound to face. Last week, we looked at a psalm of lament in Psalm chapter 77. The psalmist teaches us how do we wrestle with God when things aren't the way they're supposed to be. What do we do when a marriage blows up, when a child dies, when you've been hurt by another person? How do you speak to God about these things? I think the idea of a lament, it makes sense to us. We know what a a lament is. But this morning, we're going to be looking at a different psalm. We're going to be looking at a psalm of ascent. That might be a little bit more confusing for you. So before we dive into the text, I want to look at first, what is a psalm of ascent? The question you're probably asking is, what is it that we're ascending here? In Deuteronomy chapter 16, verse 16, God commands Israel to make three annual pilgrimages uh, to Jerusalem. Three times a year, they were called to leave their homes and to go to Jerusalem, one for Passover, one for Pentecost, and one for the Feast of Tabernacles. So this was an annual three times a year. It was, it was a regular occurrence for the people of Israel that they would be heading to Jerusalem. And Jerusalem is surrounded by a bunch of mountains. Um, it's situated within the middle of the, the western mountains in Israel. So uh, for, for us, we might be thinking of maybe a Mediterranean Asheville. It's situated in, in, in the midst of a bunch of, of mountains there. I see those of you who've been to Israel who are like, no, that's not it. But just stick with me. It, it's, it's close-ish. So Psalms 120 through Psalms 134 are known as the Psalms of Ascent. If you look under the, the, the number of the psalm, you'll read a psalm or a song of ascent. 
these songs, they were uh, designed to be songs for the journey. They were designed to be sung on their way to Jerusalem for these annual pilgrimages. This, these songs, they, they weren't just simply road trip music, though. They really were intentional. They were purposeful, and they hit on a number of different experiences that the psalmist would face along the way. These psalms contain songs of praise, songs of thanksgiving. There's lament in the psalms of ascent, requests for help, like our, our psalm this morning, calls to worship this God. The psalms of ascent give us words for the various experiences that Israel was bound to face on the way to Jerusalem. This journey, this pilgrimage wasn't easy for them, but the Israelites did it anyway. It was a commitment to obey God, to follow his commands. We should expect that, that obedience is hard work. It, it, it's challenging for us. When we get in the trenches of life with another person, we should expect to take some fire. And these are the songs that Israel would sing, that they would remember, that they would dwell upon as they were making that journey, as they were taking those steps of obedience. So let's look specifically at our text this morning. Psalm 121 is a psalm of ascent, but really the genre, it's, it's a psalm of trust. It's a psalm that teaches us how do we declare our trust in God. So the psalm is broken up kind of into two chunks. The first is really just verse one. In verse one, the psalmist teaches us to engage, engage with God. He calls, the, he calls us to, to speak our needs before God, and then he calls us to ask for help. And then the second part of, of our passage this morning is verses two through really the end of the chapter, verses two through eight. And the psalmist teaches us to remember. We're called to remember that God is our keeper and that we can trust him. Line after line in these, in these last verses are describing who God is and why we can place our trust in him. This is why he is trustworthy. So this morning, you're going to hear some, uh, some connections. I'm going to reference Tom's sermon last week from Psalm 77. If you were here, you, you've probably heard that the, the outline is relatively similar. Cry out to God, but make that turn. This morning, engage with God, but remember who he is. I think they're similar. That's because that's intentional. That's because our lives aren't one and done. We don't hear a sermon on Psalm 77 and be like, oh, good, I've got lament done. Check we still need reminders of, of how do we do this well? How do we engage with God? Redundancy really is a good teaching method. That's what scripture does, and that's what I'll do here this morning. So let's look at verse one again. The psalmist says, I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? So first, the psalmist teaches us to engage, to engage with God. The psalmist, he breaks us into two pieces. He states his need, and then he asks for help. Engage with God. So the first way that the psalmist engages is by stating his need. He says, I lift my eyes up to the hills. So you're probably wondering, what's up with the hills? Why does the psalmist need help here? So remember, Jerusalem is situated between mountains. It's, it's a mountain trek to get there. And this, difficult, this journey could be difficult. It could be potentially dangerous. They had to pass through some difficult terrain along the way. I'm not sure about you, but I'm actually a big fan of the mountains. Uh, when Emily and I, wherever we drive north of Winston, we're like peeking around the corner trying to, to see Pilot Mountain when it, when it emerges. Uh, if you put me in the mountains on a bike, I'll be happy as a clam any day of the week. Um, so when I think about the mountains, or even the phrase that the psalmist uses, I lift my eyes up to the hills, 
there's some pretty positive connotations for me there. Um, I'm, I'm actually really excited, but this wouldn't be the case for the original audience. This wouldn't be the case for the Israelites. Instead, the Israelites, when they saw these mountains, they knew that they were preparing for a dangerous trek. They could be facing natural disasters, whether those are, are, are animals along the way, whether it's uh, difficult weather. They knew that they could be facing evil people with malicious intent. Or maybe it was simply the arduousness of making this journey again and again and again. Reading these words, I think excitement, but the psalmist and the Israelites, they were probably hearing fear, maybe anxiety, un uncertainty, the unknown around every corner. Travel might not do that for you. It, 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 it might not make you afraid, it does for my wife, but we all get this experience of fear. Fear is a universal human experience. So what do we do when we're afraid? We're afraid of, of spiders, we're afraid of uncertainty, we're afraid of being alone, we're afraid of death. But even when the psalmist is faced with fear and uncertainty, the psalmist turns to God and he articulates his need. So what do you do when you're afraid? How quick are you to speak to God and to tell him about your needs and your concerns? As I was preparing to preach this, this question, it really convicted me. There are so many times this week that even in preparing to speak to y'all that I was, I was head down in, the, in, in books, I was reading, I was writing, I was practicing and preparing, but I wasn't speaking to God. It's so easy for us to forget to do this, but we can speak to God and say, God, I, the, the, here are my needs. Here are my fears and concerns. Please don't forget to do that. That's a crucial part of the Christian life. So the psalmist is engaging with God here. He first states his need in the first half of verse one, and then in the second half of verse one, he asks God for help. The psalmist writes, from where does my help come? This is a rhetorical question, but it's also very real. The psalmist really does need help. But when the psalmist is afraid and his heart is filled with concern, where does he go? He quickly turns to God. He quickly turns to God and asks for help. The psalmist is confident that even in his fear and his frustration, that he's confident that God will hear his cry. And this is echoed throughout the psalms. We should have a confidence that God will hear us when we ask him for help. In Psalm chapter six, David says that God has heard his plea and accepts his prayers. In Psalm 34, David writes that this poor man cried, but God heard him and saved him. God will hear you when you cry out to him. So friends, this morning, I want to invite you to do that. I want to invite you to be honest and open with our God. Do you tell him about your cares and concerns? Do you ask him for help in your time of need? Last week, Tom and Vanitha gave us some great examples of this. Tom talked about how he would read through a psalm and write it down, and then he would journal prayers that would kind of follow along with the flow, the movement of the psalm. Vanitha, she talked about writing her own psalms of lament. She would follow just a simple structure of, of first she'd write, how long, O Lord? And then she would state her complaints, her, her concerns, her fears, her frustrations before God. But then she would always end with this declaration of trust, but you, oh God, and she would write down reasons why she can trust our God. You don't have to follow any of these specific examples, but I do encourage you to follow our brother and sister who have been attempting, striving, struggling to walk faithfully with God, even in the midst of hardship and suffering. 
The psalmist does this. We can do this too. And God invites us to do this. God invites us to speak about the concerns of our hearts and to ask him for help. At first, I think that these concerns might sound maybe, maybe simple, might sound as simple as, God help me. There was a time where that would be about all I had when I was driving to work. I would say, God, please help me. But I think over time, as we, we grow in our ability to speak to God about these hard things, I hope that our prayers will be more and more conformed to the word of God. Maybe we'll be saying, God, I do believe, but please help my unbelief. Maybe we'll be asking him uh, for peace that surpasses understanding. Maybe we'll be simply asking God to give us patience today. Sometimes I think we have an experience where uh, we, we maybe we overshare with someone that we're conversing with, or, or maybe we undershare, or we respond in the wrong way. And then you leave that interaction and you're feeling like, that person thinks I'm weird now. Um, so then you start to, to measure your words and you start to be more careful with the way that you speak. Maybe you even withdraw or, or, or don't speak in a situation that you could make a, a, a social faux pas. I think Keith even hinted at this this morning when he was praying, saying that we can, we can get tired when our kids are constantly coming to us, asking over and over again, but God does not treat us this way. God doesn't say, that was awkward, you're weird, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go over here. God doesn't withdraw from us. He draws near to the brokenhearted. Even when we're crying and complaining and selfish, God moves towards us, my friends. One author wrote this week, however discouraged you may feel, your flagging heart never lies beyond the reach of Christ. No matter how troubled, how unsettled, how fickle, how disoriented, or how despondent, Jesus can handle your ailing heart. Speak to him, my friends. Just like Tom and Vanitha stated last week, please don't feel like less of a Christian. Don't feel like less of a Christian because you are speaking to God because you're hurting and you're saying, God, I need help. This is a vital part of being children of the King. We have access to him and we can speak to him about these things. This morning, if you're here and you are an unbeliever, you're not quite so sure if you, you believe the things that you're hearing this morning, you're not sure if this is for you, I want to tell you that this is what makes our care and our counseling different. This is what makes us distinct. We can talk about grief, we can talk about how do you walk through hard things, we can talk about how to improve your marriage, or, but ultimately, we need to interact with God, our Heavenly Father. This vertical interaction is, is crucial, it is distinctive, it is essential for the Christian life. This is what we are called to do, this is what the psalmist teaches us, and what an incredible gift that we have access to this Father. I think that sometimes the, the phrase engage with God, it can be ambiguous, it can be a little hard to understand. What, does, uh, what do I really mean when I'm saying that? So if you turn to the back of your notes, uh, the back of your bulletin, um, at the top of sermon notes, I have a phrase there from uh, one of my seminary professors, David Paulison. And I'm not gonna read the whole thing for you, but he recognized this, that sometimes it can be hard for us to understand what does it mean to engage with God? So he pulled out a bunch of words from scripture that just describe what does it look like to interact with God in faith. They're at the top of your, the, the sermon notes in your bulletin, but I wanna draw your attention to the last two sentences there. Paulson writes, what do you need from God? Open a candid, intelligent, pointed, childlike conversation with him. I encourage you to do that this morning, my friends.
One more thing before we move on. I think that uh, we can see uh, maybe emotions might be a helpful indicator or perhaps like a, a check engine light. They might tell us, hey, you need to be engaging with God right now. When you start to feel yourself getting angry, you start to feel yourself getting emotional, you're upset and you're scared, that should be an indicator for you that I need to do something. And it, it's not I need to, to go put my, my hand to the plow, it's I need to speak to God about these things. Emotions should be a check engine light or an indicator that we, can, that we should interact with God. Don't, don't stuff your emotions. One author wrote this, Emotions are a God-given gift. Let me read that again because that might be shocking for you. Emotions are a God-given gift, an aid to obedience, a constant occasion for connection with the Lord, and a vital source of information about the deeper problems of our hearts. Our emotions reveal what's going on in our hearts and they give us an opportunity to engage with God. I pray that that you won't stuff those emotions. You don't need to John Wayne this thing. That's not the Christian life. Speak to God about these things. So last week, Tom, uh, Tom mentioned that we start by crying out to God, but we don't end here. We start by crying out to God, but there's always a turn in the Psalms. I'm gonna say the same thing this morning, but in a bit of a different way. We don't end here by crying out to God, but we do need to start here. If we miss this, we're missing a vital aspect of what it means to be a follower of Christ. We can speak to him, we can engage with him, we can state our need and call out to God for help. However, we should also make this turn and that's what the psalmist does in verse two. So let's look at that. Um, The the second half of of our, well it's not the half, the majority of our text is about remembering. Remembering that God is our keeper and that we can trust him. The psalmist turns from engaging to remembering. The psalms, they never end in hopelessness. They never end in hopelessness. They always make this turn. There's one exception that kind of Venetha mentioned last, last week that was Psalm 88, which ends, darkness is my only friend. That sounds pretty rough. It sounds like maybe an experience that, that echoes, it, it resonates with you. But I'm gonna argue that Psalm 88 and Psalm 89, they're meant to be read together, which Psalm 89 begins, I will sing of the Lord's great love forever. The Psalms always make the turn from crying out to remembering, from crying out, they turn to to this is who God is. Generally, uh, these remembrances, they fall into two categories, Um, and this applies to all the Psalms. We'll look specifically at 121 in a second, but these two categories of remembrance fall into two buckets. One, uh, they remember God's character. They remember who God is. God is just, God is good. He is the creator of all things. And then they also remember the second thing, which is that God has been faithful. They remember God's faithfulness in past history, either personally or, or, or historically. In the nation of Israel, God has always been faithful to his people. So let's look at verse two. Let's see how the psalmist does this. He writes, my help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. The psalmist answers his own question. God is the one who provides help. And then he spends the rest of the chapter describing who God is and what he has done. So usually psalms are written, they're, they're poetry, so they're written in maybe stanzas. In this, in this chapter, they're couplets, so the two verses go together, one and two, three and four, you get the picture. But usually these stanzas or couplets are arranged thematically, so one and two should kind of be the same idea, um, but I love that here the psalmist steals his own thunder a little bit, and he jumps right into 
remembering who God is. He can't wait till verse three. He jumps right into this is who God is. Last week in Psalm 77, it took Asaph 10 verses to make this turn. Whereas here in Psalm 121, it only takes two. And in fact, the psalmist jumps the gun in his own kind of poetic form. I think there's a point there for us, and that's all struggles aren't the same. Some struggles warrant more wrestling. They warrant more engaging, crying out to God. Whereas other times, I think that we should be pressing ourselves to move more quickly, to make that turn more quickly. For example, loss is not something that you're going to get over overnight. If you do, it will only make things worse, I promise. We need to spend time there lamenting, grieving, crying out to God. But then there are other times that we're maybe wounded by something that a friend has said. God still cares about those wounds, but I might encourage you to, to, press, to press forward, to remember who God is. I might encourage you that it's to God's glory to overlook an offense in, in a Proverbs 19.11 sense. Therefore, cry out to God, but quickly turn to this is who God is. This psalm is a psalm of trust this morning. Psalm 121 is a psalm of trust and not lament because the psalmist moves so quickly from here is my cry to here is who God is. So at the end of verse two, the psalmist says that God is the maker of heaven and earth. And I know this sounds simplistic. We've heard this time and time again. We know that God is our creator, but I think this is a truth that we really need to, to stop and pause. We need to really marinate in this if we want to get any flavor. So I think we should roll this kind of idea around in our noggins. This isn't something that you know, I read and then I move past, but maybe it's something that you let, let that, that thought stick with you the rest of the day. Meditate on that idea that God is the maker of heaven and earth. Go back to that and allow, allow God to show you who he is. So that's what I did for us today. And if I want to point out two things, two implications that of, of God as the maker of heaven and earth that will hopefully be a comfort to you, that will motivate you to trusting in God, to trusting him. So God is our creator, two implications. First, God is able. God is able to do things that are incredible, that are so far beyond anything that we can even imagine. He created everything from nothing. Think about how God ordered the world so that everything fits together. Maybe for some of you, I might encourage you to go for a walk later today and check out the nearest, uh, nearest flower that you see. Examine it for its beauty, but also its complexity. The way that that flower is put together is just incredible. Rarely do we stop and smell the roses, but sometimes I think we need to, and that's helpful for us. In fact, I think this is what Jesus calls us to in Matthew chapter six, when he says, consider the lilies of the field. If God takes care of them, how much more will he take care of you? Someone that he's created in his image, his beloved child. God is able. This conclusion isn't rocket science, but, but dwelling upon this truth, it's mind boggling. I think the, the weight of this hits us the more that we marinate. And here's the second thing that I want to point out. God is our owner. God is our owner. I'm thinking of maybe some potter and clay imagery in Romans 9 or maybe Jeremiah 18. Who are we to question God's purposes? He is the God of the universe. He has created us. He owns us and he can do with us what he wants. Yet at the same time, God encourages us and, and, and tells us to call out to him. He invites us to speak to him about these hard things, even when we don't understand. 
I think there's a rebuke here, but there's also incredible comfort. I think about like the Heidelberg Catechism and question one says, what is your only comfort in life and death? And they respond that I am not my own, but belong body and soul to my faithful savior, Jesus Christ. God owns us. God will be glorified through that work that he's, the work that he's doing in your life. Even when we don't understand, even when it's hard, even when it is painful, God is still working. Even when his footsteps are unseen, God is on the move. I think this idea that God is the maker of heaven and earth, it's simple, but it's profound. And even more so, it's more profound when we consider how verse two begins. My help comes from the Lord. Who? Who made heaven and earth. All of these abilities, this power, this love, this care, all of this is leveraged for us. God leverages his power and his abilities for us. I hope that this motivates you. It, it encourages you that we can trust in him. By remembering who God is, by really marinating in this truth, we can grow in trust. And then when we look back at those mountains in verse one, they don't seem quite as scary. So I wanna encourage you to do some of this on your own. We're gonna look at the rest of the, the six verses and try to unpack some of these, these phrases, these verses that describe who this God is. But I encourage you to do this. I want you to take a verse that sticks out to you and, and read that throughout the rest of the week. Allow that, that, maybe it's just one phrase that sticks in your mind. Sometimes I think it's easier to remember than the entirety of Psalm 121. Maybe it's just remembering that God is the maker of heaven and earth. Allow yourself to meditate on that, dwell upon that, remind yourself of that, and I pray that that will increase your faith and your trust in God. Let's look at the following six verses and see what other truths the psalmist is clinging to. I want you to take a second and look at those six verses and see if you can find any repeated words. Are there any words that appear again and again and again in these six verses? So hopefully you found keep or keeper appears a bunch. And Repetition is really important. Whenever you see repetition in scripture, the, the author is trying to make a point. And I think the theme of our passage this morning is that God is our keeper. This idea is really difficult to contextualize kind of in our day. Um, we don't really have like keepers in the same way as what the psalmist is trying to talk about. Most of us, we may be thinking of like a, a zookeeper um, or perhaps Cain and Abel. Um, you're not thinking of zookeepers, I guess. Um, that's what Emily was thinking of. Um, but We've got zookeepers, we've got uh, the keeper of the keys, we've got uh, maybe Cain and Abel, you're thinking of, am, am I my brother's keeper? And these ideas, they kind of have the idea of like an overseer, someone who watches over, but I think there's more to the story than that. I think there's more going on than, than simply one who oversees. So here's my definition of keeper. A keeper is one who watches over us, who cares for us, who knows our needs and protects us. Our keeper is our guardian, our defender, and our protector. I'll read that one more time. Our keeper watches over us, cares for us, knows our needs, and protects us. Our keeper is our guardian, defender, and protector. So I kind of think like if, if this is a while back, maybe like a knight would be a good example of a protector. Um, but we do have some examples of protectors in our day. God is ultimately our protector, 
But we as image bearers have some of that responsibility in this world as well. And in our church, I think about the elders of our church are protectors. They are keepers of the flock. Their job is to make sure that the, that sound doctrine is being taught and is being affirmed by, by us, by the body of Christ. They are protecting us from wolves. They are keeping us from harm. And, and the elders, they care about what, you, what, you, what you're thinking, what you're believing, but also about the, the physical needs that we have. We care for one another, and the elders have a big part in that. They love us, they protect us. In the same way, we are called to protect one another. We are called to keep one another as members of one body. We are called to hold one another accountable, to speak truth and love to one another, when, even when it is difficult. We try to do this, but we so often fail. But we are called, brothers and sisters, as members of this church, we are called to to care for, to protect one another. When one of us is suffering or is sinning greatly, we sacrifice for that brother or sister. That's what we are called to do. We strive to do this. We try to, to follow in God's footsteps, but ultimately we are fallen. We can't do it. We're unable to be, to protect one another. But God is not. God is a perfect keeper and protector. He keeps all things, but more specifically, he keeps you. Because God is our keeper, we can have faith and hope when we face hard things. So the rest of these verses, there's tons of imagery in here um, that they're describing the nature of God as our keeper. Um, And we'll look at each of these. Uh, But I think imagery is important. And it's not something that I'm particularly good at. Like, I'm not good at like dropping images on folks, but I'm thankful for people who are. Um, Nick is really good at this. If, if you were here a few weeks ago, Nick was preaching through Haggai, and he used the uh, illustration, the metaphor of uh, our spiritual lives as an engine. And it's so easy for us to start coasting and, and then stalling. And we need to revitalize, renew, to, to kickstart our engines uh, to continue following Christ. That's the call of Haggai. That's the call to spiritual revitalization. And in fact, I think the psalmist teaches us how to do that. How do you kickstart that engine? Well, in Psalm 121, it's engage with God and it's remember. I think the imagery in this chapter is here for a reason. Images, they stick in our head, kind of like the maker of heaven and earth, that simple phrase. Images stick in our head and we can remember them throughout the day. Earlier, I encourage you to read over uh, maybe a verse, take a verse and carry that with you throughout the week. As we look at the following images, I'm going to encourage you to do the same, possibly with one of those. Maybe uh, maker of heaven and earth doesn't stick, but maybe the idea of God does not slumber does stick in your head. And meditate on that throughout the week. Remind yourself of these things. In, our, uh, in your care group, I've got some blog questions for you guys that I'm going to encourage you to share with one another. Verses or images that have been helpful for you, that have been a reminder to you of who God is, an encouragement to you. So in this passage, in verses 3 through 8, we've got tons of imagery. Um, maybe uh, verse 3 is jumping out to you that God will not let your foot be moved Remember the context here. The Israelites are headed to Jerusalem. They are on the way with a treacherous journey, but God promises to protect them so that they may complete the journey. God won't let your foot be moved. Or maybe the imagery in verses five or six grabs you that God protects us from the sun and the moon. 
I think this is a figure of speech. We're not actually talking about like the sun and the moon are out to get you. Um, we do live in North Carolina. Uh, the sun is a problem here. It's been like a million degrees the past week. Um, we get that. Um, but I don't think it's actually the sun and the moon that are out to get you. I think there's a figure of speech here where the psalmist takes two opposites to affirm the totality. Two opposites to affirm the totality. So God will protect you when the sun is out. God will protect you when the moon is out. God's going to protect you all the time. God is always our protector. I also think that the psalmist uses this imagery of the sun and the moon uh, because we really can't control them. You and I don't choose if the sun rises. We don't choose if it's 100 degrees out today. The sun and moon, we can't control, but God can. God is in control even of these things. God protects us. God is in control. A lot of you, if you're familiar with kind of 12-step or addiction recovery programs, a lot of them begin with a prayer of serenity uh, that begins something like this. God, grant me serenity to accept the things I cannot change. So the idea is that there's all sorts of things that we can't change. There's all sorts of uncertainties and fears and challenges in life. And the prayer is, help me to have peace even in the midst of that. And I, I, do, I do hope that that's the case, that we will feel a sense of peace We'll be able to rest even when things are uncertain, when things are difficult. But we also have a greater hope than, than peace in and of itself. We cannot change things, but God can. We have a relationship with a God who is our keeper, who protects us from those things. I, don't, I, I, I want peace in the midst of those uncertainties, but I also want confidence, knowing that God is taking care of them, even if I can't. So there's more imagery in, in these, these last six verses, but the one that jumped out to me was found in verses three through four. Let me read that for us. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. I, I know this is a contentious topic at our church, but I know we need to talk about this. How much sleep should we be getting? Now, I know some of you are familiar with a certain Puritan quote um, that says something to the effect of, this is a loose paraphrase, um, if you sleep for more than seven hours a day, then you are a sluggard and you are Satan's best friend. Um, whereas uh, others of you, you may feel like, but I was born to sleep. I was, I was born to take that Sunday afternoon nap in the sun. Uh, you may feel, uh, you may really enjoy sleep. Others, when you take that nap, you'll wake up and you'll be like, oh man, the day's gone. What have I done? And, and, and for some of us, we really struggle to, to even hit the hay. We, we need to burn the candle at both ends. We need to burn the midnight oil. We, we struggle to go to sleep. In fact, I once had a professor who said that sometimes the holiest thing you could do is to take a nap. For you perfectionists, for you uh, who find their value in their work and their accomplishments, that's probably hard to hear. You don't need to do it all. I think sometimes it, it's holier for us to hit the hay than it is to keep our hand to the plow. Here's the thing. God created us as finite creatures. You do need sleep. You do need food. We can't do it all. We need to sleep in order to thrive as human beings. This is how God made us, and he knows this. He knows he made us this way. So if you think that you need to do 30, hours in a 20, 30 things in a 24-hour day or 30 hours of work in a 24-hour day, you're mistaken. That's not what God has called us to. You need sleep. This is how God has designed us. You and I, we need sleep, but God does not. God is constantly vigilant. In fact, God doesn't sleep 
so that we can find rest. We don't need to control every aspect of our lives. We don't need to be perfect. You don't need to do it all because God will keep us. We can rest today because we know that our keeper is constantly vigilant. That might mean that we can let go of those thoughts that keep us up at night. You can engage with God and remember, remind yourself that even when you are literally sleeping, God is still keeping and sustaining all that he has created. This language of not sleeping is repeated a few times here, and I think the imagery that, that the Israelites would have remembered is in 1 Kings chapter 18, and this is where Elijah is facing off the prophets of Baal, and they build these altars, and uh, they, they call upon Baal and then upon uh, the God of creation to, to light these things on fire, these altars. And the, the prophets of Baal are doing this, they're calling out to God, but, but nothing happens, so they begin to harm themselves, trying to motivate their, their Baal to respond but nothing happens. And Elijah begins taunting them, uh, and he says, maybe your God has taken a nap, or perhaps he's stuck in the bathroom. Um, so that, that does not happen to God, though. The end of the story, God burns up that offering, even though it's covered with water. It does not matter. God is able, and he does this work. Remind yourselves, friends, that God is our keeper. He does not sleep. And because of that, we can rest, both now and in the future. So far at this point in, in, in the text, the psalmist has given us reason after reason for why we can trust God in the midst of our present trials, our fears, and our, our uncertainties. But I want to close by looking at the, the last two verses. At the end of the chapter, the psalmist makes an incredible declaration about our future trust in this keeper as well. He writes, the Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. God will keep us, he will keep our very life now and forever. This morning you're probably thinking, but what about death? Christians still die, what do we do with that? And that's, that's really a good question, we are all dying. Humans have always had to wrestle with this problem, what do we do with death? Two weeks ago, Tom, uh, looked at Psalm 49 and, and started to, to, to show us what the Bible says about death. How does God's word think about death? If you weren't here for that, I strongly encourage you to go home this week and to listen to that sermon on Psalm 49. But death is a reality that we have to face as human beings. Death is a consequence of the fall. We are guilty. We have sinned against God and we deserve death and judgment before a holy and just God. However, Christ made it so that death doesn't have the final word. He died on a cross, but was raised on the third day. All those who believe this morning, you receive these blessings and benefits of Christ because you have been united to him. Therefore, the resurrection that Christ was raised, we will bear that as well. That's foreshadowing for the day that we will be raised as well. Even when we lose our lives, we are safe and secure God will protect us, we will be raised again, and we're waiting for a glory that is without suffering, without death, without pain, and that's not because of anything that you have done, but because of the work that Christ has done in our place. I think Paul picks up on this theme really, really well in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 16 through 17. Listen to this, Paul writes, we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. 
for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Can you imagine that? An eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. I think we get little tastes of that. We get an idea of that when we're saying praises to God together. When we're reading his word and God opens our eyes, when God comforts our hearts and our souls in times of difficulty and trial, we get a taste of that. But Paul describes it as an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And in fact, looking back in verse 16, he says that this light momentary affliction, he, he says that the trials of our day, they become lighter in comparison. When we consider the glory that, we, that, that is to come, the glory that God has promised us, those afflictions become lighter. Even when we die, God will protect us. God will keep us. We are waiting. Things aren't the way they're supposed to be, but he will do this. He will bring this work to completion, my friends. Until that day, brothers and sisters, I hope that you can follow in the footsteps of the psalmist, engage with God, state your need to him and ask for help, but also remember that God is our keeper. You can trust him even when things are scary, even when things are uncertain. We can trust him even in our own death. Again, I encourage you to grab a stanza, grab some imagery from this passage, read that, read that every day for the next week. Allow that to remind you this is who this God is. Allow that to comfort your soul and grow your trust in our Father. Let's take a minute and let's do this now. Let's speak to God about some areas that, that we're struggling, that we need to speak to him and ask for help. He is our protector and our defender. Maybe we need to confess and affirm those truths. Maybe we need to ask God for help when we, when we don't believe. Let's take a minute to do this on our own and then I will close this in prayer.